You're listening to Thunder Quack Podcast Network. Hi, my name is Terry Cavanaugh, and you're listening to the Epic Marvel Podcast. Hello and welcome back to the Epic Marvel Podcast. This is Excalibur, Episode 1, The Sword is Drawn. And this is a period of Excalibur from 1988 to 1989, uh, with a few little side quests uh, back to the 70s, actually. We're going to talk about a little bit of, of uh, the stuff before Excalibur. Um, but I am your host, Curtis, and joining me for the first time on the show is Johnny Cannon. Hi, Johnny. Hi, you How are you doing? Uh, great. I'm glad that you are on this episode with me. Uh, you've been a follower of the of the show for a while, and yeah, we get to talk about comics. So this is kind of exciting. It's incredibly exciting because I bore my wife senseless, and any time I try and talk to her about comics, she just uh, leaves the room basically now. So <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I know. I know what you mean. Um, it, it's funny because you you live in your own circles, and usually you're sort of isolated in that uh, uh, it's easier now with like the Marvel movies and such like that but but that, that's talk about the movies but when you want to talk about the nitty gritty parts of the comics I've got my brother I've got a cousin yeah. my cousin Craig who's on the show sometimes and and yep. that's about it yeah but the internet leaves me with the entire world to find these people who share the same sort of uh, level of, of love that I have right here and you are all the way in Scotland right <laughs> that's that's I'm I'm your token British person for other for like Scalabar, uh, uh epic collections. Actually, that's one thing I was thinking about. It must give a completely different reading experience because a lot of the places in which this is set, kind of like I obviously know and I've and I've been to, um, uh, although quite a lot of the places in here, like the Cheviot Hills and stuff like that, and uh, is it Darkmoor and Nuclear Power Plant? They, sadly, they don't exist. <laughs> <laughs> I feel the same way about Alpha Flight. Aye, aye. <laughs> <laughs> so tell me, uh, Johnny, what are we talking about in this issue? Which issues are we going to be covering? What we're going to be covering in the Sword is Drawn is, um, like you say, there's, there's, at, at the back of it, there's a random selection of comics from uh, Marvel Comics Presents. Um, but there's also the origin of Captain Britain, which first appeared in Captain Britain Weekly um, back in 1976. Um, and there's a couple of issues from... It would have been the mighty world of Marvel, uh, two two issues which were drawn by Alan Davis but written by Steve Craddock, and those those appeared um, just after the Jasper's Warp storyline, which um, North American listeners will probably have heard of. It's been mentioned a few times, and it's it was referenced in a in the X Men a couple of times in a, in a storyline when Claremont came back to the X Men. But the main part of the book covers. Um, the first few issues of Excalibur up to issue, oh my goodness, which one? The special edition number one, and then up to issue 11, and special edition two as well. Yeah, this is the beginning of Excalibur, and this is such an interesting time for X-Men comics in general, because the X-Men at this point are presumed dead, and the title is still going on, 
but everybody, including the characters in this book, think that they're gone, think that they're long dead and they're never coming back. So we get a lot of that sort of feeling and, and thoughts throughout this book. Uh, of course, they're not dead. Their their title still is going on, but nobody here knows that. Yeah. What are the other things we kind of need to know before jumping into this into this book? Uh, I mean, Captain Britain's history is pretty complicated. Yeah, that was the thing that struck me the most reading through this, is that he makes references to stuff, and like he is such a mystery. And uh, I, I really don't know very much about Captain Britain at all. Um, and then when reading his origin story, actually just rose more questions about yeah. how Captain Britain is portrayed in this book. It didn't. It yeah, wasn't. It, it wasn't helpful at all. <laughs> yeah, it's again. I think. I think the way that the chronology of the book doesn't help that either. It might have made more sense to have the origin in the teen sympathy story, which introduced Megan just before probably Excalibur starts. Uh, Captain Britain's. He was one of those characters who used to bounce about different titles, which were published by Marvel UK. Firstly, in Captain Britain Weekly, then Hulk Weekly, then the Daredevils, which. Um, also featured Daredevil, unsurprisingly, in some uh, US reprints, and then the Marvel, uh, Mighty World of Marvel, and then Captain Britain. He was also reappeared in Marvel Superheroes. It was when I started reading Captain Britain when I was a wee boy. I would have been about uh, probably five the first time I read Captain Britain. And there's the, there's just so much. There's like a whole decade of Captain Britain content yeah. before we even get to Excalibur. That us in North America, unless you buy those big fat omnibuses, you only know maybe one or two stories. Even if you even find those trades, like it's not common stuff. I think the most famous Captain Britain appearances probably in the U.S. would have been the Marvel team up issues. Yeah, uh, that Chris Claremont and John Byrne did. And those those are amazing, and certainly in the Marvel tales. A reprint I had again when I was when I was a wee boy. Those were even reprinted in the eighties. They had the origin uh, of Captain Britain reprinted in the back uh, of those two issues, which was where I read it for the first time. Um, and then when I was a bit older, I managed to get back issues of Captain Britain Weekly, which is which is I was actually laughing when I read the trade when I read the Epic Collection because it says in the cover to uh, Captain Britain Weekly printed in full colour. That actually wasn't true because in the comic they had a couple of pages in black and white and at the bottom it said, free, colour your own Captain Britain pages. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> it's just even print, it's so cheap. <laughs> but <laughs> that still makes me laugh. That's funny. Um, they didn't do that, unfortunately, in the Epic Collection. <laughs> yeah. So the Epic Collections sort of have two ways of collecting uh, first volumes like this. There's, there's There are volumes like Silver Surfer, and like uh, Punisher is going to be one of these ones when its first volume comes out, uh, or um, the first volume of the Hulk is another example where they collect a bunch of the appearances before the character gets their own ongoing title. To because oftentimes if the character doesn't start out with their own title right off the bat, the, all, a lot of the character development and of course the origin story is is told before. So they want to bring you up to speed by including all of that. This one, because it's a team book, um, I think they put the Captain Britain and Cap and Megan first appearances in the back of the book pretty much just to be bonus features. Um, yeah. Because they don't give us, you know, giant size X-Men number one to show Nightcrawler's first appearance or or Shadowcat's first appearance or, or Phoenix's first appearance. We 
that's all kind of left off. But they do give us these two things, partly because, again, like I said at the beginning of the episode, these two characters, Captain Britain and Megan, are fairly mysterious characters for all of us over on the in North America. Yeah. Yeah, I think... And, and certainly in the redesigned Captain Britain costume, it's appeared in an X-Men annual drawn by Alan Davis as well. And later on, it appeared in a couple of Captain America comics drawn by Paul Neary. Um, but I think that's the only um, time American audiences would have seen him in, in those costumes. Right. And I know Chris Claremont was a big fan because obviously he uh, co-created. Yep. Um, um, but people would have been probably wondering who's who is Megan. So... Uh, and when you get to Saturn 9, that's when it gets incredibly confusing because there's two versions of it in this book. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, that's right. And so what I think we're going to do for this episode is we're going to tackle the Britain, the Captain Britain and Megan issues first. But before we get to that, uh, we're going to turn over to Facebook for some listener comments. <laughs> I asked people to give their thoughts about this book, Excalibur Volume 1, Epic Collection Volume 1, and we got a good response. Zachary says, My favorite superhero is Captain Britain because of, his, uh, because of this run. It was my introduction to him, and it was unusual to read this hero struggling with his own demons and at the same time struggling to work and live with people he barely knew. The incredible Alan Davis immediately became my new favorite penciler, best nightcrawler ever. And even though I already owned Excalibur Classics trades, I had to pick up the epic with the addition of the Marvel Comics Presents story, a forgotten relic. And while not the best written story, it's definitely a lot of fun. And hey, Eric Larson drawing something other than Spider-Man, Punisher, or Wolverine. So thanks for that, Zachary. Yeah, Alan Davis. I think we will probably gush over Alan Davis throughout this whole episode. (laughs) Definitely, it'd be absolutely amazing. Mark says, Excalibur was the mutant comic I didn't know I needed. In the summer of 1988, the X-Men were Marvel's hottest property, the line was expanding, and Team Claremont were trying their level best to write all those books. The month that Excalibur's ongoing series launched, Claremont was writing two issues of Uncanny and an annual, preparing to launch his new Wolverine solo book the next month, and penning the Wolverine serial in Marvel Comics Presents. Louis Simonson, Claremont's former editor, was writing New Mutants, having taken over from Chris, and X-Factor, and the Exterminators miniseries. Yeah, that is a lot of X stuff, kind of all of a sudden. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Excalibur felt a lot like early Claremont Uncanny X-Men. It had a slightly international flavor and introduced many new characters and concepts, um, like Widget, Colin, the Warwolves, and Who, and as well as reintroducing elements and characters from the Marvel UK books, The Crazy Gang, Gatecrasher, Technet, Saturnine, Vixen, Courtney Ross, etc. It, it was a good mix, and the tone of the stories was very refreshing with a healthy and welcome dose of humor. While the adventures were thrilling, I always felt the focus was on the characters and how they interacted with each other. Uh, I, I would agree with that. I really like the character development and the character relationships in this book. Yeah. Uh, he finishes saying, I loved this run of Excalibur and poured over every issue. The stories were fast-paced and interesting. The art was fabulous with Davis at the top of his game, and the book was separate enough from the rest of the mutant titles to have a feel and identity all of its own. A great read. Yeah, I, th- I think it's I think it's a, a great book. I think there's some issues are stronger than others. I think that, uh, some of the fill-in issues are 
Um, not as strong, but that's that's just because Alan Davis is so good. I mean, he's he's, he's in a completely different level. I think he's one of the best artists uh, to come out in the eighties and nineties. The only Steve Rudd, I think, kind of comes near him in terms of that really beautiful clean line. Yeah. Lucas says Alan Davis is my favorite artist ever. We're gonna, I'm sure we're going to get that a lot here. <laughs> and his work here is beyond amazing. He does humor so well, and his creative designs are always a joy. I liked this because it was very different, a very different tone from the rest of the line. Um, I would have to agree. The, the humor is hard to do, I think, in comic form. Because so much of humor relies on the delivery, the verbal delivery of the line that you're reading. And if you and your head are not reading it the right way, it could really fall flat. Alan Davis is really good at that that kind of pacing, like the kind of doing the setup in one panel and then the punchline in the next. But yes. one of one of the he talks about in the Modern Masters, uh, volume one, does it's a big extended interview with Alan Davis. And there's a wee mini interview with Mark Farmer and Paul Needy in there as well. He talks about how one of his main artistic influences was a guy called, um, he was a British artist called Leo Baxendale, who drew for the Beano, which you might have heard of. It's a really famous British humour comic. That's the one so with uh, the British Dennis the Menace, right? Yep, and Minnie the Minx, um, and, uh, oh gosh, Banana Man. Oh, Banana <laughs> Man, yeah, that's right. As well. um, so yeah, he grew up reading humour comics, so that's where he kind of gets that from. Okay, Ben says Excalibur, the sword is drawn, is the gold standard. All future Excalibur stories will be compared to the, these books. Okay, the sword is drawn, I think he means the epic collection, is the gold standard. Uh, Chris Claremont is the defining writer uh, of the X books from the mid-70s through the early 90s, and his presence is felt and currently missed. I don't want to downplay the gorgeous artwork of Alan Davis. Davis gave a depth of humanity and a much-needed sense of humor to the frequently dour X-Books. Claremont always works best with a strong artistic partner, and Davis is one of his best. From the first prestige book uh, that is the title of this collection until the final page, the Claremont-Davis team knocks it out of the park. Yeah, definitely. Thanks, Ben. Hemi says, Loved it. I love the dynamic between the characters. It also has my two favorite X-Men, Nightcrawler and Shadowcat. This series also made me love Rachel Summers, and TechNet is amazing. Nightcrawler has always been my favorite X-Men as well. Um, from a young age, I latched onto him because his name is the same as mine, Kurt. Uh, he even spells it with a K like I do. And that's when I'm eight years old and I'm deciding who my favorite character is. Of course, I'm going to choose the guy with, my, with, with the same name as you. And uh, you got lots of options, Johnny. <laughs> yeah, but there's not many superheroes yeah. that are named Curtis out there. Uh, but then I came to realize that this character is incredibly amazing. And I and and in Nightcrawler, uh, I'll get I'll get into how he is in Excalibur when we get into the issues because it's very interesting to, to me to to see him in Excalibur. Yeah, I think I think it's one of the most interesting versions of him because. Uh, Visually, Davis really changed the character. He made him taller um, and really played up the swashbuckling um, aspects of the character. But I, I like the way his powers had changed after the Mutant Massacre. Uh, they kind of limited the extent they could teleport and it just added that layer of vulnerability to him that was really, really interesting. Mm -hmm. Frank says, I really like these issues and Alan Davis is one of my favorite artists ever. And I know that's... Uh, probably second favorite because I know Frank really likes John Romita Sr. the best. Uh, I think it tied well with some of Claremont's wackiest ideas that could not really fit into X-Men, which got more political by then. 
I also enjoyed a lot how it organically evolved from Captain Britain to a few X-Men stories and finally into this book. And it's such a fun book and it has Kitty and Nightcrawler. What's not to like? Exactly. What's not to like? Yeah, definitely. Mark says, the comic came just at the start of my comic collecting and as a bonus of being British meant that it was one that I would collect. The dream team of Claremont's writing and Davis's smooth art, it brought the characters to life with the humor and fun stories. I collected classic X-Men at the same time, so quickly grew to have Nightcrawler as one of my favorite characters. Yoav says, a great collection of issues. The highlight for me were the fight between Captain Britain and his Nazi counterpart and the Mojo Mayhem special. Yeah, uh, there really isn't a misstep in this book, I think. It's solid all the way through. Arthur Adams, you can't go wrong. I mean, his his work's incredible as well. Mm Mm-hmm. Chris Valentine says, I never read the book during its initial run, but after the, reading the first volume, I ordered the second the next day. I like what they did with Captain Britain. I've been studying a lot of Claremont's work the last month, but it's Alan Davis's artwork that always grabs me. Yep, that's good. Yeah, um, I hope you like the second book as well. There are f- that, that one is a, a mixed bag, and it has... People are on different sides of the fence concerning whether that one is good or not. Yeah, Chris Chris Wozniak became the regular penciler, didn't he, after Alan Davis, I think. Right, yeah. Yeah, yeah, he was very divisive. I remember at the time, that's that's when I stopped reading Excalibur. Uh-huh. Well, we'll get a chance to talk about those issues in another episode. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure they're a lot better than I remember. <laughs> Sean says, I loved the issues in this epic volume. Such a change from the other serious X-Books at the time. The art was great. The humor has aged, though. And I'd say that in a couple instances, the humor has aged. But for the most part, I think the humor stays strong throughout the whole thing. It, it's very, it reads very modern in a lot of senses. I think it's because they use a lot of slapstick. There's a lot of visual humor in there as well, which yeah. had, I mean, yeah, that had some of that had continued from when Alan Moore and, and Dave Thorpe were writing Captain Britain. But there was a few uh, comics at the time, I think, that probably kind of pushed Excalibur in that direction. Like Justice League International had been out the year before, I think, in 1987, and that was a big hit. Mm-hmm. And John Byrne's She-Hulk as well, the relaunch of that, you know, was, was a humor book as well. So I think that's maybe how... Um, they kind of figured right if we're doing a different X-Men book and he's a different tone let's let's give it a comedic tone to it because that's what's selling in comics just now right yeah Joshua says I think the one shot that introduced them as a team is such an enjoyable story they are such a random bunch but they totally work that's an X-Men thing making a random bunch of characters totally work I think that's that's you know, that's what Claremont seems to do over and over again. <laughs> yeah. And then I have an odd an odd comment at the very last one from Joe. He says, agonizingly slow and absurd start. And I, really? can't, I can't disagree with that more. I, I think it's a fantastic start. Absurd, yes, because of the nature of the stories or the humor and such, but not slow. Yeah. It kind of, it moves, it moves quite quick, I thought. Definitely, you get you get thrown right into the story. I mean, it's like like a like a lot of really good stories. You start in the middle with with in the special edition with Rachel. So yeah, yeah, I, I, I totally agree with you, Curtis. Yeah, um, but that's okay. Everyone's entitled to their opinion, and not everyone's book is everyone's cup of tea. But I think the main things that we're seeing from these comments are that uh, they love Alan Davis's art. The humor is a refreshing change. And uh, and that these these first issues are a high point and probably the gold standard for the rest of the Excalibur run. 
uh, and e even many maybe Claremont's work altogether. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, thanks for your comments, everybody. I post more on Facebook and, and Instagram and Twitter if you want to join us there or join our Epic Collection Facebook group. It's a fun time just talking about the various different Epic Collections. You can search me on search for that on Facebook and, and uh, join the group. Okay, let's dive into these issues. Uh, we are going to start at the back of the book with the bonus features because it is, I think it's important to give us some context to some of these characters here. So we're going to start with Captain Britain. This is, you said this is a weekly comic, right? Captain Britain Weekly, number one. Yeah, that's right. Um, it was a weekly comic and I, I don't know how long it ran for. What they used to do in British comics um, you maybe heard of 2000 AD, and that wasn't published by Marvel UK, but comics like that from the 70s, what they used to do is they'd publish them for a while, and then to get a sales boost, they'd merge them um, with other titles. So 2000 AD for a while was 2000 AD and Star-Lord, and 2000 AD and, and Tornado, uh, and Captain Britain would get merged into other titles like uh, Marvel Superheroes or, or, or Mighty World of Marvel. Um, they used to call it Hatch, Match, and Dispatch, that kind of approach to doing comics. Oh, okay. uh, they're just kind of short-term sales boosts. Um, but uh, Captain Britain was quite interesting because it started doing original content. Um, I think Larry Lieber was editor back then. It was you that told me that. Yeah. Um, but when Des Skin was editing Hulk Weekly, they had the Black Knight comic strip, which was maybe two pages long, three pages long, and that's when Captain Britain reappeared. Um, after this, which then led into the relaunch with Alan Davis. So, yeah, I mean, like you say, I mean, he did a long history, but he was all over the place. That's something that's always been part of the character. Uh, his publication history has always been quite nomadic. Mm -hmm. And so this Captain Britain Weekly, so the, the story there's, is only like six pages, I think, in this, because they're yeah. all serialized. And it had this, the cover says it has reprints of the Fantastic Four and Nick Fury Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D., uh, the the Ameri from the American side of things. Um, it was the uh, it was the Nick Fury stuff drawn by Jack Kirby, and I think it was either inked by John Severin or Marie Severin because it looked very very different. Um, but it was beautiful stuff. New stuff. But they did have a new Nick Fury strip in Hulk Weekly, which was drawn by Steve Dillon. Oh, okay. um, but that was like two or three pages. Yeah, it's very very hard to get hold of because uh, Des Skin, the editor, had commissioned a lot of British artists. To, to do American characters. Steve Dillon, I think, also drew a Hulk strip as well. Right. Back in the so the Hulk stuff has been collect collected, I found out recently, into a trade really? that's available. Right. Yeah, I think it's just called the the UK strips or something like the UK stories. Uh, but I would love to see that Nick Fury stuff. Wow, that's, I had no idea. Very cool. Looks really, really nice. The best one, best two strips out of that period were probably the Black Knight one. Which is which is beautiful. Um, it's drawn almost like kind of Hal Foster drew Prince Valiant. Yeah. Uh, the other one that's amazing is Night Raven, which was drawn by David Lloyd, who did V for Vendetta, and it's stunning. It's okay. Absolutely stunning. Oh, it's beautiful. So I think Night Raven was collected recently into a complete collection, because uh, there were a whole bunch of prose stories in those UK magazines. Yeah, as well. that's, yeah. I did get it because yeah, of that. It was it was pretty expensive, and half of it is prose. You're totally right. <laughs> <laughs> and so all of that stuff is collected into a big book. And I have the Black Knight stories, actually. I just realized in a Captain Britain trade, I can't remember what it's called, Birth of a Legend or something like that. Yes, I have that as well. I had the Panini one. 
no, it's uh, it's an American one. All oh, right, okay, all right, because over here, uh, Panini Comics is a license to publish Marvel stuff. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. So all of Captain Britain's comics have been, all of the stories have been collected into five epic size graphic novels or comics um, by Panini. And I, I would love to get my hands on those, but I just can't, like, shipping them across the sea because they're big, bulky books is going to be so expensive. But they are, they're great. And this is, like, other than buying the Omnis, which I, I'm not sure collect everything exactly, um, th- th- those five books would be the one, the way to go. I would like to see if I can find find them somehow. Yeah, um, the, the thing about the, the, just for listeners, some... It's quite interesting. A lot of people probably don't know that the early Captain Britain strips by Alan Davis, they weren't in colour, they were in black and white. So the colouring, by the time you get to uh, the Jasper's Warp storyline, those were actually coloured for, I think it was, oh, it was a Marvel US reprint series. Oh yeah, it says so in this book here. It says um, X-Men Archives featuring Captain Britain. Yeah, those if you can get hold of those in back issue bins, those are those are really good. So we have the colorized version of those stories in this epic collection yeah. here. Uh, okay, yeah. so enough about this. Let's because uh, <laughs> we're we're sucking <laughs> up all the time talking about other stuff here. But let's talk about yeah, exactly. this one, Captain Britain number one. This is the first half of his origin story, written by Chris Claremont and drawn by Herb Trimpey and Fred Keita. Herb, I think, is doing the breakdowns and the layouts and Fred Keita is doing the inks and man alive do they do their best Jack Kirby for these issues like it's such um it's such a Jack Kirby style that they have here yeah and I really think that's part uh partly due to Fred Keita he's not a very well-known name he did the Spider-Man newspaper strip for a while all right that's you yeah I I Herb Trimpey can do a Jack Kirby, but not this well. So I really feel like it's Fred Keita's influence, his inks over top, that that smooths out a lot of Herb's work, and and gives it that very dynamic Kirby-ish flavor. A lot of the shadows and that kind of stuff. It's exactly what Kirby would be doing. Yeah, it's funny you mentioned the the newspaper strip because when I was uh, reading the the next issue in particular, when I was looking at the the faces Merlin and Rome in particular, they've got a John Romita look to them as well and the smoothness of the line mm-hmm. um, but yeah you're right. the figure works pure Kirby so it's like that blend of Kirby and Ramita I mean it's stunning stuff it is it really is and I feel like Chris Claremont is trying to do his best Stan in this as well because it feels yeah. so much more like Stan Lee than Chris Claremont uh, through the dialogue and just the pacing the, the way that it, it flows very interesting stuff here uh, but anyway, for those of you who don't know, uh, I'm just gonna—we're gonna do some very brief recaps just to remind you what's going on in these issues here. In Captain Britain number one, we have a physicist. He's a university student who is. Uh, his name is Brian Braddock, and he is caught in an assault on a nuclear plant. He escapes, but he's injured in a motorcycle crash, and is is faced with these two. I don't know, like spirits in the sky or something like that, saying you can either choose the sword or the amulet, the sword of death or the amulet of life. Which one do you choose? And he's got to make a decision quick because the guys who blew up this power plant are are chasing him down. So 
that there's your origin story kind of for Captain Britain. I w- what surprised me is that it's very very Stan Lee to include a nuclear power plant to make <laughs> nuclear power be the the cause of of his superpowers, but that's not how it goes down in this issue. He doesn't get caught in a blast, and it doesn't give him superpowers. <laughs> so that was a nice twist, I thought. Yeah, I mean, they've, they've got that kind of twist of, you know, drawn in Arthurian legends, and they've got some standing stones in there um, to make it seem more British, and obviously the Reavers in his, in his knight costume as well, yeah, to give it that kind of medieval British flavor. Yeah, uh, and we have... So there's, uh, in, in the story of uh, King Arthur and the Knights of the Round Table, there is one seat that's at the round table that's always vacant, and it's called the Siege Perilous. All right. Merlin always kept that one vacant for, you know, the one who's going to save everybody or something like that. And so that person, apparently, is Captain Britain here. So this is, I don't know that they ever say his name in this in this issue, in the story, but I'm, I'm pretty sure this is Merlin in the sky. Yes, as and he's saying you got to choose the sword or the amulet and it'll give you powers and you will take a seat at the knights of the round table so yes yeah and that's that's where we are for this issue it's it's a it's great fast paced it's it's such even though it's 1976 it's such a throwback to early 1960s marvel the entire thing it's it's really actually quite wonderful yeah that's a really good call actually i hadn't actually picked up on that myself uh but you're, to- you're totally right, it is. I think it's what's really interesting as well is because, like you've picked up on already, this is only uh, six pages. Like That's that's the way British comics reprinted the US comics as well. It was They were much shorter because they were all weekly comics. Yeah. So you got it in shorter installments. Um, so you tended to get a faster, really compressed pace to the British comics. So this is, this, is, this is pretty typical of the feel of British comics at the time. It would also fit really well with the other stuff that's being reprinted because these comics uh, reprinted comics that, were, that had already been out in the, the United States for years. So if they're printing Nick Fury, Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. in this, they're printing 1960s stories, and I'm pretty sure they're probably printing 1960s stories of the Fantastic Four as well. So if the reprints have Stan and Jack... And this Captain Britain story is emulating Stan and Jack. It would fit in so, so well. Yeah, definitely. I mean, you had uh, Fantastic Four Weekly, Thor Weekly. Um, Thor merged with X-Men Weekly, so you had Thor and X-Men. You had Spider-Man, which became Super Spider-Man TV Weekly for a while. And right. then it became Spider-Man and Zoids as well. So, yeah, you, that, that, that happened a lot. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, the lady that appears next to Merlin is his daughter, Roma, who would appear as, as a character um, in the X-Men in the 80s as well, particularly oh, the Sylvester issues. Right. That's who that is. Okay. Yeah, they don't see either of their names, I don't think, in this. I was wondering yeah, it's weird they don't even mention Merlin's name. Yeah, that's quite weird, actually. Mm-hmm. But maybe it's assuming that people would be... I don't know how well the, the whole Arthurian legend is, is well-known in Britain. Oh, very, very well known. It's a very English, in particular, myth. So maybe it doesn't need to so, be said. Yeah, probably not. I mean, yeah, probably most people would. Th- I mean, I remember always thinking it was Merlin, but that's I can't remember if that's because I read the Dave Thorpe Allen Davis comics before I actually read these ones. But yeah, I would just always figure it was Merlin. If it's a man with a beard appearing in the sky yeah. and he's wearing a toga or or a, a cloak, then you know it's going to be Merlin. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> 
Well, do you want to take us through the second part of this origin story? Yeah, sure thing. So the the second part of the origin story kind of it's almost set as a as a flashback scene to the choice that he's got to make, like you say, between the sword and the amulet, um, and he chooses the amulet. And there was a wee bit here I just wanted to read because it really made me laugh when I was when I was reading it because some dialogue <laughs> just seems a bit cheesy when you look back on it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You want me to affect an English accent for doing this because Captain Britain is English. Okay. Um, choose which the sword or the amulet, the symbol of bloodshed or the symbol of life. And that really made me laugh because I was like. Why is that amulet a symbol of life? <laughs> <laughs> I was like, is there meant to be something on that amulet that maybe just didn't get picked up in the inking? So it just really, really made me laugh because it's dead corny. And then uh, he gets hit by a kind of meteorite or a burst of energy, and he turns into Captain Britain. Um, and this this also made me laugh because I was looking at the Captain Britain Wikipedia page to see if there's anything I didn't remember from when I was younger, and it says how the design is like. You know, the most memorable thing about it is that line in the middle of his chest, and yeah. it says it's the symbol of the charter mark for eggs in the UK. That's actually, <laughs> that's actually not the case. That's actually based in the, the royal flag of Scotland. Oh, it's called the lion okay. rampant. So, so well done, Wikipedia, for offending an entire country. Um, but the colour scheme's reversed, so it's a very interesting choice that they went for that, because that is a, a very Scottish flag. And then they've got elements in the Union Jack and the Cuffs. Um, and, and the cowl as well. But I yeah. loved that costume design as a kid. It's, it's fun to draw as well. Um, and then uh, Captain Britain, once he's in his costume, gets attacked by the Reaver's men, and you get an absolutely beautiful splash page. And the Reaver chooses the sword because he chooses bloodshed. And then Captain Britain basically beats them up quite easily in a very dramatic way. And like, like you say, it's got a real 60s feel to it, a real classic Marvel feel to it. Him, I think it's a really strong origin. And then at the end, Captain Britain's standing triumphant and, and Merlin and Roma are standing in the background with speaking in almost an Asgardian uh, form of speech. Right, yeah, that's right. The other thing that I found interesting here is that Captain Britain's origin is not born out of tragedy. He doesn't lose anybody. No one dies, like Uncle Ben or anything like that. So it really is a very unique origin if for Marvel superheroes. He is bestowed powers from the gods like Thor, but it's it's a in much more of a different circumstance. It's really funny you mentioned that because I'd forgotten about that when I was when I was rereading that his parents do actually die in a car crash. Um, but I think that was maybe done retroactively, maybe in the Alan Moore comics, or maybe it might have been later on oh, okay. in the Captain written by Claremont, but his parents do die in a um, kind of fiery um, car crash. Do you want me to spoil you what actually does happen? Because you find out some stuff later on in Captain Britain Monthly that he's actually half alien. He's from Otherworld. What? Um, oh, okay. <laughs> no, it's, it's very complicated. But he and Psy- like Psylocke's not a mutant. She's from Otherworld as well. So wow, <laughs> it's, it gets very complicated. It's it's excellent. No, it's really really good. I uh, yeah, that's that's so strange, um, because they don't say that in these other stories, and they don't like that's just not no, something like, that's touched on at all. That's just it. I mean, you almost need a, a text piece just to give you a story of Captain Britain so far, and they certainly did that in the Panini um, reprints. They kind of gave you that, and Alan Moore actually had written a couple of them as well. Yeah, he wrote quite a, an infamous one when he took over writing Captain Britain because he really took the mickey <laughs> the early comics <laughs> were rubbish which is a bit unfair but there you go 
Okay, so tell me this, uh, because you are you obviously know a lot more about Captain Britain than I do. What happened to his amulet? Why doesn't he wear it anymore? Oh, my goodness, right. I've got this book next to me because I knew you were going to ask me something like this. <laughs> <laughs> so what happens is, and this is really, really interesting, because one of the first comics I ever read, um, it was called In Support of Darwin, and it was uh, from Marvel Superheroes 380. So what happened was Captain Britain, after Captain... Britain Weekly was cancelled. He disappeared for a few years, I think maybe for two years, and then came back in Hulk Weekly, um, number one, and he appeared in the Black Knight strip. Just before the end of that comic strip, Merlin sends Captain Britain back to Earth, because this takes place in Otherworld. There's elves and there's orcs. Um, I think there's a dragon in it as well. Um, and it's very much steeped in, kind of, it's, it's very much got a Lord of the Rings feel. And then when he comes back in Marvel Superheroes number 377, it's got much more of a kind of surrealist science fiction feel. And literally in the first page, you see in the second panel, Merlin, in fact, it doesn't even show Merlin, you see him changing costume. Um, you know how you used to, Steve Ditko used to draw the Spider-Man face, like half Peter Parker, half Spider-Man? Yeah. It's like that. So he's changing costumes and the amulet just disappears, the scepter disappears. Um, and he has a sidekick elf called Jackdaw, um, who quickly <laughs> changes from being dressed as an elf, kind yeah. of Lord of the Rings style, to having a surfboard and getting drunk and becomes very camp, is probably the best way of putting it. Um, it's, it's a bit stereotypical. And that's written by Dave Thorpe and drawn by Alan Davis. And then quickly, Alan, Alan Moore takes over the writing the series. But the first comic, I, one of the first comics I ever read was a couple of issues in, 380. And Alan Davis um, <laughs> gets devolved into a chimpanzee in it. Uh, I haven't read that story, but I, I have that one in that trade paperback collection of Captain Britain that I have. So I should go and read that, I guess. It's really good. What, what you'll notice is really interesting because Alan Davis, that was the first comics he ever drew. And he actually thought you drew that actual size. So he was drawing the same size were published. That's why his art looks a bit rough. But oh, the, the, wow, the, really? Yeah, the improvement in his art is unbelievable. Within a couple of years, you can see him getting better and better because he started getting work for 2000 AD and he was drawn professionally. But at first, Paul Meary was his mentor because he was the editor at the time and was you know, sort of giving him tips and, and, and how to draw and storytelling. But it's actually really inspirational because you see, like, you know, it's, I mean, he's, he's still great, but you can see his artwork changing. I think he's very like Gil Kane at first, actually, with anatomy and then just. His, his figures get more and more powerful and it's, it just becomes beautiful by the end of that book. Wow. Amazing. Yeah, it's really, really good. Because it's very complicated with the multiple Saturnines, So, uh, Do you want to move on to the next one, The Mighty World of Marvel number seven? Yep. This story is called The Candlelight Dialogues. This is one of the ones that's written by Alan Moore and drawn by Alan Davis. Or they're just credited as co-creators, so I don't know how much Alan Davis has input in the actual plot but uh, this is the first appearance of Megan and we don't really even know that until the very last panel of the story when they, they say their name it's kind of a one-off throwaway story uh, and it's it's actually a really really cool story so the, there are these two girls who are sharing a cigarette and swapping stories about Captain Britain and each one is kind of exaggerating and one-upping the other person's story it turns out they're mutants. One of them looks like a normal girl. The other one is kind of like a bat creature, like Man Bat from from uh, Batman the Animated Series or from the comics. She does, yeah. 
and uh, and and they're in. It turns out at the by the end of the story that they are in a mutant uh, concentration camp, and they are waiting for Captain Britain to be their liberator. It's an it's an amazing story of just life and of of these two people holding out hope for the future because they're they're stuck with nowhere to go. Just an incredible story, and it's such a different flavor than anything you would see in North American Marvel in the 1980s. That just the pacing, the the dialogue, the feel of it. It's so yeah. so good, and uh, it's so European. I think is just, that's just the thing. Is it feels like something you would be reading in Judge Dredd or something like that, right? It's so very different. I like it a lot. Really funny you mentioned that because this would have been published around about the same time as Warrior magazine, which you may have heard of. That's where V for Vendetta first appeared in. Right. Um, Medical Man. So Alan Davis was working on Medical Man with Alan Moore, I think, at the same time of this. Um, this would originally been black and white as well. So the original black and white version actually looks even nicer than this. The colouring kind of takes something a wee bit away from it. They don't sure. quite get the colouring right in Britain's costume in it, for example, but I mean, it's eight pages, and in eight pages, it's it's incredible because it continues the Jasper's Warp storyline, um, but it works on its own. It's like you say, it's fantastic and builds Captain Britain up into this mythic, hope-inspiring character. Um, you know, a really a symbol. It, it's um, so, it's yeah, incredible. I, I absolutely love it. Now, I really feel like this is... I, I haven't read the rest of this storyline, which I really want to now based on this one chapter to learn more about these concentration camps because that yeah. is taking the concept of mutant hatred to a, a way, way, way further concept than, than North Americans ever do. It's not just people holding signs. This is people, yeah. this is actually them being rounded up and taken to places where they're going to be exterminated. Like that's, that's, it's, it's crazy. So they weren't actually uh, mutants. They were the guy that you see getting captured by the guards at first. He's a punk. Yeah. Um, so it's like, it's anyone that's counterculture. Oh. That's up. Oh, uh, really? Okay. So if, I mean, so it's about being different. So, I mean, it's a much, much stronger and much more obvious um, story about you know, different if you're a punk, if you're if you're if you're gay, if you're a member of any kind of subculture, you know, you're different from the establishments. It's very anti establishment. That really ties in with what Alan Moore was doing in V for Vendetta with the kind of stuff about anarchy and that. Yes. Um, it's, it's, British comics, particularly nineteen eighties, tended to be very, very political, um, in a way that American comics were, and that's partly because Margaret Thatcher was Prime Minister at the time, who was an incredibly divisive figure. And the Union Jack at that time Okay. And very, very different things to different people, which is why you see him holding the flag in that panel, because Union Jack was actually a symbol of fascism in, in the UK in the 80s, and still is, actually, um, in, in parts of the UK as well just now. So Captain Britain's actually quite a complicated figure, and that's reflected in some of the stories, and that's actually why Dave Thorpe ended up um, being fired from writing Captain Britain, and Alan Moore came on in the first place, because Alan Moore, eh, sorry, Alan Davis refused to draw a story about the IRA um, in Captain Britain. Oh, wow. So yeah, yeah, it's, it's um, I think there's a text piece in that Captain Britain book you've got, which explains it. It's certainly Alan Davis talks about in the Modern Masters, which is well worth getting. I emailed Alan Davis for an interview and he declined. I would have so loved to talk to him about this stuff because it's so interesting. Oh, he's, he's a fascinating guy. I feel like there's shades of the uh, South African apartheid in here as well. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, definitely. Because especially in the 80s when this book came out, when this story was first published, like that's right about the time when 
the public was starting to definitely speak out against everything that was going there and trying to break down walls and stuff. It's funny you mention that because Margaret Thatcher supported the apartheid regime, so, oh, so yeah. and also General Pinochet's regime in Chile as well. So that's again one of the reasons why she was divisive. Um, wow, you know she just called Nelson Mandela a terrorist. So, oh boy, um, I it's it, the eighties were a very very different time in the UK. It was a very strange time to grow up. Um, it was it's this this story captures it perfectly. It really really does. We didn't have concentration. Um, so I can't stress that enough. <laughs> so I, I don't but. think that um, this this story, the only reason it's here is because Megan is a character in here, but it's such a throwaway issue in terms of her. It's not really an origin story. Um, I don't think that these that these creators ever expected to use this character ever again based on this story here. I think you're absolutely right. I think there may be... Davis brought her back in the subsequent stories because of, she was interesting visually and also yeah. um, it can, I suppose... I mean, Alan Moore had left it by the, by the next issue. Do you want us just to go into that and I'll talk about that one? Yeah, then? let's do that, yeah. Okay. So this one's called Bad Moon Rising and this was also from the mighty world of Marvel. Uh, and this was the first issue after Alan Moore had left. I think he'd gone over to America to write Swamp Thing at that point. Um, so this is written by Steve Craddock, who was more well known as a as a, a letterer, um, and it was drawn by Alan Davis. But Alan Davis plotted this as well, um, and this this is one of my favourite Captain Britain comics ever. I think this is where um, Alan Davis's art has really just dialed up a notch. It's absolutely stunning, and also shows he can draw sometimes in a sort of noirish way. I think he's inking himself here, so people will probably used to see him inked by Mark Farmer, who's got a very very smooth line. This is this is stunning. Some of the silhouettes in it. Yeah. Uh, the storyline basically, he's reflecting back in Jasper's warp. Um, he's not himself at all. The Betsy that he talks about in, in the, the first person narration is his twin sister, who's Psylocke. And um, she was badly scarred from from the Jasper's warp because her her lover died. Um, he talks about Captain UK, and again, if you're reading this, having not read the Captain Britain. UK comics. You must have been really confused. Like, who's Captain UK? <laughs> yeah, that was that was the biggest thing in this one is that he mentions so many things in this first page that happened yeah. in the recent past, and like they they all sound like excellent stories that I really want to read. They're, they're I mean, they are incredible. I mean, it goes it then introduced Sidney Crumb, who is a homeless person, and he will come back in to Captain Britain monthly. Mm-hmm. A couple of years later, and there's a very tragic end. It's it's a heartbreaking story. It's one of the few comics I actually cried. Wow. Um, but again, he's introduced in this, and you're like, Chris Clement does this a lot. You know, you you, you meet an incidental character, tells you about their background, and then they almost die instantly. He doesn't. Megan attacks him because the full moon drives her crazy because they were going for that kind of weirbat vibe um, back then, which which you'd mentioned. Captain Britain fights her. Um. It has a flashback to the candlelight dialogues um, when Megan's trying to kind of re- regain her composure from, from the influence of the moon and she flashes back to Sue. Sue's her friend and Sue is there with her brother Mickey who's watching this fight between Captain Britain and Megan and then Mickey's tragically killed and um, some scaffolding falls on him and it ends in a heartbreaking panel which which Davis draws absolutely beautiful beautifully. Um, and it just shows, you know, all that power, and he's helpless to save a, a young boy's life, and that really affects the character going forward. 
Um, those characters reappear a couple of times uh, in later on issues of, of Excalibur. And I think it really shows the humanity of Captain Britain because he can come across as a very pompous and arrogant character. But, you know, it, it just shows that he actually has a very strong humane side and does care about people. Definitely. And especially in the next issue when it really affects him. Like, this is this is really, really great to, to not only reintroduce Megan to the storyline, but it's a, such a, in eight pages, tells us everything we need to know about Captain Britain, about what he cares for, what yeah. he stands for, uh, and how he deals with situations. He is, yeah. he, I feel like he's even more of a human character than Captain America is, and he, Captain America is pretty darn human. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you're going to have a lot of fun trying to explain the story in this, because when these guys in armor appear again, you must have been like, who are they? <laughs> So, uh, I I didn't know I didn't put together the fact that the scripter and the letterer are the same person, but that makes a lot of sense based on just the arrangement of the dialogue and such. So, if you go to page the second page of this story, which is page four seventy in the Epic Collection, you've got right. the tall, tall vertical panel on the left with Captain Britain uh -huh. at the very top. Yep. And then the dialogue boxes, there's small ones of him, of his internal dialogue going all the way down, taking your eye all the way down this panel with the last one saying, Sidney Crumb is a solitary man, and the, the panel placed right above Sidney Crumb. I just think it's such a, a great layout. And when you have the yeah. person creating the dialogue to fit the spaces, and they know exactly how to arrange the spaces because they are the letterer, uh, it shows off really, really well. Yeah, sometimes um, pencilers will do their word balloon placement, but I think when it comes to like first person narration, I, I I don't know if they do that, and I I think you're totally right. It's, I think that's that's absolutely letter that's done that because it's so much text in a page, but it it, it I think it doesn't it doesn't take any, anything away from the background. No, not at it's, all. It's stunning. I've, I've actually that's I don't think I've seen many panels with that much text on it that does that. But it's, it really draws your eye down, you're right. And also it frames the page as well. It's stunning. And you can still see exactly what's going on in the background because it's broken up into little boxes. So it's not a really obscuring any art either. It's just really, really well done placement. And it's like this the entire way. If you go to yeah. page 474 yeah. and you have the, the Captain Britain is first confronting uh, the brother and sister, Mickey yeah. and Josie, there is a lot of text in those panels but it's split up evenly into several little um, bubbles or, or or balloons that are placed appropriately around the panel like it doesn't obscure any of the artwork um, I just released the episode uh, last week about Venom the Venom miniseries called the mace and in that one the lettering is just so terrible the placement of the word balloons and and the obscuring artwork and that kind of stuff but this one does all the right stuff. See, if you look at page 474 at the bottom again, so this page is is kind of in three tiers. It's got three panels in the top tier. It's got a long horizontal panel, close yep. up of Captain Britain in the middle tier. And then in the bottom, you've got three panels. Now, there's a vertical panel on the left, and then there's two stacked in the right. And a lot of people argue against stacking. And what you used to see in some 1960s comics, you'd have a wee arrow showing you which order to read in. But you're yes. right, the letter its position draws your eyes across how to read those three panels. Yep. I mean, yep. the lettering is really, really good. I don't know what happened to Steve Craddock. 
and um, I don't know if he uh, quite a few people from that time kind of went into the games industry or or went into magazines because a lot of UK comics were published by magazines um, like to, uh, magazine companies or newspaper companies so maybe that's what happened to me he just moved into other magazines but his lettering is fantastic you're right I hadn't actually noticed that but it's, it's, it's brilliant one more thing about this one page page 474 is that it's a almost a perfectly balanced page as well in terms of the letter the, yeah. the bubbles uh, the like the word balloons and the dialogue boxes because you have heavy heavy dialogue boxes in the top left corner and heavy yeah. heavy do- uh, word balloons in the bottom right corner but then the top right corner and then the bottom left corner are blank pretty much blank except for one small little thing so you have the everything is evenly distributed amongst the page yeah it does suspense beautifully and really for the first four panels the thing in panel three <laughs> Alex um, there's a mysterious figure watching them both yeah that's uh, Captain Britain from an alternative <laughs> really oh cool <laughs> who wor- who works for um, Saturn Nin who is the person that appears as one of the villains in the Excalibur storyline later on yeah um, and what I think would have worked really really well is probably instead of the the Marvel Comics Presents issues if they'd reprinted two of the stories from the Captain Britain Monthly, which introduces Saturn in and introduces that Captain Britain who's got a captain with a K and it's Captain Britain. Um and it's 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 a phenomenal it's, it's quite a controversial storyline because it's something that happens to Psylocke in it. Um I won't spoil it for you, but okay. you've got that in, in that in that Captain Britain collection you've got. It's a okay. stunning story. Amazing. Okay. Yeah, I just picked up that Captain Britain book recently, so I haven't had a chance to read it or anything. But let's go move on to the next one here. Um, yep. We are. This is a Mighty World of Marvel number fifteen. It's called Tea and Sympathy, and this is the second half of the story that we just talked about. We have the, the Josie and her parents at home. Some time has passed, I guess, and um, I, I love these first panels again, stacked panels, and all of the panels are the same just with the characters moved about the room differently to, to create some acting, you can tell that the death of the son or the brother has taken its toll on the family and they don't know how to cope with each other and, or talk to each other now, which is a very real thing. It's, it's raw motion and it's so well scripted. Yeah. There's a knock at the door and Captain Britain is there. He says that he's responsible for his son's death and they all come together and the whole issue is just talking um and they the family sort of mourns together with captain britain and eventually megan shows up as well and they all they all mourn together and in the end there's sort of a little bit of laughter and and it's just such a it's a moving moving story the dialogue is so well scripted here uh, to keep yeah. to keep it interesting to to keep your emotions high because this is a, a heavy subject. Um, everybody has a different perspective on it, and again, it's only like eight pages. It's fantastic. I, I just can't get enough of these these uh, bonus features, which, in my mind, should uh, be placed in the in in with the, the actual content. It's, they're so good. I think you're right, and I think if they'd done that, especially, I think maybe. With the special edition, the tone of that, the way Captain Britain is in that, he's not the most sympathetic character. Whereas if you read this first, you can actually see why he's like that, because he is so deeply scarred by people having been hurt when he's been trying to protect people. 
Um, I think what, what's also stunning about this is the way that um, it starts off that first page, 478, I mean, it's almost like a mini splash page with the scaffolding. Yes. And the splash ground. That's, that's stunning. And then the panel layout down down the side, stacked um, horizontal panels. It's almost like a British TV shows from the 80s were like that. They kinda, there's quite a lot of British TV shows which focused on urban deprivation um, and working class people. And it's got a real working class feel, which is really interesting because Captain Britain is very much an upper class, aristocratic, blonde haired, blue eyed, six feet six kind of super wealthy character and here he is in a in a, in a council estate and um, presumably in london looking at the silhouette in the background interacting with people and and it's shown that you know he's not some far removed member of the aristocracy that looks down on people you know he's, he's a nice person and um, so i think it's a fantastic storyline and um, what did you think of the last couple of pages when it introduces the men in armor that, that attack them randomly <laughs> <laughs> that was so strange. That was, uh, I feel like it was like, okay, enough of this talking. The editors really want to have some action in here, so we got to put some action in it. Um, all, or it's setting up a future storyline that I just don't know about. But it was like so out of place and kind of wasn't my favorite part of the story, that's for sure. <laughs> so let's continue. And they're hunting the Captain Britain from the previous issue. They think Captain Britain is Captain Britain. And oh, okay. that's why they're And then they come back and Captain Britain monthly so this was i don't know if they knew they were going to publish captain britain monthly at the time that was the last issue that was in um, mighty world of marvel before his own monthly uh, title launched which which i i mean it's just it's just stunning it's really i mean you can see alan davis has, has improved so much um even over these two issues he's he's oh, it's incredible he's so so good yeah so what these bonus features don't tell us because they don't print these issues is how Megan gets to be from where she is here looking like a bat were creature uh, to the incredibly gorgeous Megan that we see in in the, the, the Mar Excalibur special edition. Yeah, so it's the one I, I don't have the Panini volume that has that in it. I've got another reprint which is now long out of print. Um, it was um, a Marvel one from the. I think, just check the publication date. This is from 1988. So this they brought this out just as Excalibur they brought out. Okay. And in the, got, uh, in the introduction, Chris Claremont writes it. Um, and there's a panel taken from Excalibur. So they brought this out, I guess, to get American readers up to speed on who Captain Britain was. And this reprint starts off with Bad Moon Riding. So the story that we've just spoken about, Teen Sympathies in it. So this is the first time I read that stuff. There's an issue after that uh, in all the old familiar places. And then it goes into Captain Britain Monthly Stories, which were written by Jamie Delano, who's famous for um, writing Hellblazer. Hellblazer, yep, that's right. Yeah, um, and Alan Davis draws it all, and it's absolutely stunning. So in this, in that Captain Britain Monthly series, um, Megan is at first she and Brian are just friends. She's staying at Braddock Manor with um, his sister Betsy and her friend Alison. That's a supporting cast. And just a lot of stuff happens. Um, there's a very traumatic experience for Betsy. Captain UK, who is an alternative female version of Captain Britain from Jasper's <laughs> Warps of the Line, right. comes back to it. Um, and... They get into a fight with some young warpies who reappear in Excalibur and Alan Davis's later run as writer artist. And during that fight, Megan gets caught in a whirlwind, um, and it flashes back to her speaking with Alison, who's a telepath. And Alison's telling her about how she's 
you know, you don't need to appear as you do, Megan. Um, and Megan saying, but I was born with this Alice and I always look at this and she says, no, you're like soft clay, moulded by the fear and superstition of your people. They misunderstood your power, your instinct to protect yourself from the cold. And basically it, it reveals that she's a shapeshifter. Oh, okay. And then she transforms into Megan. One of the things, I mean, some people are disappointed in this. I think particularly feminist uh, readers would be disappointed in it because she has to become this stereotypical beautiful blonde woman before Captain Britain becomes romantically interested in her. And it is actually quite funny with <laughs> the next issue. Alison's looking at Megan and says, Megan, you did it, you changed it all, looking at her. Megan and Captain Britain's just leering at her. <laughs> and all of a sudden he's like really protecting her and basically <laughs> falls in love with her because she's stunningly beautiful. So he's incredibly shallow as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and that's the start of the dramatic. He's not remotely interested in her until she becomes stunningly beautiful. Well, and, <laughs> so and that's something they deal with out throughout that this book as well as Captain yes. Britain gets yes. too comfortable with Megan and just starts ignoring her. So it's, yeah, very, very interesting character in Captain Britain in that sense. Yeah. Yeah, I think. I mean, a few early on, they kind of get referred to as the, the bimbo couple and stuff, and, and it's actually, I think, Claremont and then uh, Davis later on do some really, really interesting thing with our character and their relationship. Wow, so that's the bonus stuff. Uh, we've been talking for an hour already, and we haven't even got to the beginning of the book. Two pages. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I'm, I'm going to say right off the bat right now that this is going to be a two-part episode because there's no way that we're going to get through all of this in the remaining time that we have left. So let's go as far as we can. This is going to be a 10-part episode. <laughs> yeah, but that's okay because this, his this history stuff is incredibly interesting to me. So I'm happy to be spending more time than maybe we typically would talking about it because it puts things in context. Um, and it's just, yeah. it's just stuff that people don't talk about on podcasts or anywhere, the, the UK stuff. So uh, I'm, it's, I, I want to talk about it more, but we should get on to Excalibur. Uh, the very first story here. Uh, just before we start, I want to mention that I got a chance to talk with Terry Kavanaugh who is the editor of Excalibur. So I'll be sprinkling a few little interview clips throughout this, this uh, episode of his conversation. Why don't I play a little clip of that right here? So I was Ann Nascenti's assistant editor, and she was the editor of the X-Men line of books. And Chris Claremont and Alan Davis had worked together on, I don't think they were in regular issues, I think they were specials of the X-Men, either annuals or something like that. They both really enjoyed working together very much. Um, we obviously loved the end result. So out of that was born the idea to do Excalibur with the two of them together. And Anne was the editor. Uh, we did that special edition first, which I think was a prestige format, if I remember correctly. That's right. My role as assistant would have been just that really assistant Anne was the editor she made the story decisions uh i certainly read plots and looked at scripts and and art and gave her my two cents on it and she followed my suggestions when she agreed with them or not i worked closely with chris and alan mainly on the trafficking elements of that uh, I would speak to both of them on a regular basis. I would see Chris when he would come into the office. Alan lived in England, so 
That was not the case. We never really saw him in person. And then left staff. We were already, I believe, working up the first issue of the regular series at that point. Not sure how far into production we were on that. She left staff. The editor-in-chief, who was Tom DeFalco at the time, I was promoted and he gave me Excalibur, but the other X-Men books were handed over to uh, Bob Harris, who had more seniority. So I was there really from the beginning of the creation of Excalibur, but I wasn't a key player. Absolutely. Uh, I got this when it first came out uh, in 1988, and it's what some people might not realize is this came out the same week in Scotland as The Killing Joke. Um, so I'd, I'd discovered a comic shop in Glasgow by this point and I went along with a friend and talked him into buying The Killing Joke because he was going to buy this <laughs> and I was like, no I want to because I love Alan Bates I talked to him and for a long time The Killing Joke was worth quite a bit of money and I was kind of stuck with this and, I was like, ah. <laughs> and we used to swap it all the time but, but I love this, the colouring in particular really stands out because yes. this was you know, I mean it was a special edition it was true bound um, it was high, very high quality paper and you can tell Davis has spent more time than he would normally would in a single issue. It was a bit longer as well. I think it's maybe about 48 pages. Yeah. So this starts off with, um, rather mysteriously, Kitty is in a dream um, and she sees the X-Men. This is, as you said earlier on, the aftermath of the X-Men being dead and her dream is essentially her mourning them. Um, and it goes for a close-up. Uh, sorry, she speaks to Psylocke, who has robotic eyes, and that's a callback to a previous Captain Britain story where she gets her eyes ripped out by an old Captain Britain villain, Slaymaster. Oh, wow. Um, then the X-Men disappear and Rachel appears, Phoenix. Um, and then war wolves burst out of the mouth of the X-Men. And I think that's a visual throwback to the old Howling. Is it the Howling poster that had that? A werewolf bursting out of someone's mouth. Right, I think so, yeah. And then Kitty wakes up because it was a dream. Um, and she misses the X-Men. And then it goes to... Megan swimming with the dolphins and she goes to the lighthouse where she lives with uh, Brian Braddock who is our boyfriend by this point um, and the lighthouse will be the headquarters of Excalibur for a long time um, and Captain Britain is drinking uh, excessively probably for most people but not that much for <laughs> someone from the UK to be honest <laughs> that's pretty normal uh, if he was in Scotland there'd be a lot more alcohol sitting about him <laughs> um, and then it cuts to um, Nightcrawler in a danger room in Muriel and you can see here his body shape already is getting stretched out and Alan Davis has talked about that originally Nightcrawler was quite small just a little bit taller than Wolverine so 5 feet 6, 5 feet 7 but he made him 6 foot um, and kind of based him a little bit in that kind of visually in that kind of Errol Flynn character which I think had been there a little bit but not as much as Alan Davis gave him he becomes a real romantic lead here um, I think in this in this comic and then Gatecrasher and the Technic show up. <laughs> We've got a very complicated publication history. I'm really sorry with this, Curtis. I didn't write it. <laughs> <laughs> it used to be another team called the Special Executive, which Alan Moore had co-created because of rights issues, because Alan Moore had fallen out with Marvel UK over unpaid invoices. They couldn't use those characters. So in the Captain Britain Monthly, they recreated the Special Executive as a Technic. And then in the Captain Britain Monthly, they brought back the special executive and said that was a past version of them. Oh, and they met them still the future, and it gets really complicated. <laughs> it's, it's brilliant, though. And then, so in this issue, Opal Luna Saturnine appears, and she's the Omniversal Majestrix. 
So one thing that's been introduced through Captain Britain that has changed the entire Marvel Universe is this idea of the multiverse. And Alan Moore created the term Earth 616 okay. for the main Marvel Earth. And that's used in all Marvel comics. And like loads of Marvel fans refer to that. That's where it comes from, is actually the Captain Britain, Marvel UK um, stuff. It was in, it probably was in Mighty World of Marvel. It was in the Jasper's Warp storyline. Um, so Opal Luna Majestrix rules the multiverse on behalf of Merlin and Roma, basically. And she sent the Technic to uh, capture Megan and Nightcrawler and, and Kitty. And meanwhile, Rachel is in Mojo World, which she'd ended up in uh, in the X-Men. She escapes and she's pursued by uh, war wolves who are trying to get her back uh, for Mojo. And um, the Technic are also after Phoenix as a threat to the kind of universe. And that's why they've gone after uh, Kitty and Nightcrawler because they smell... <laughs> Phoenix or something. It's, it's basically a, a, a good excuse to get them together. And then Cap- Nightcrawler goes and gets uh, Captain Britain out of his drunken slumber. So that's how the team come together, kind of accidentally. And like you said earlier on, they're, they're kind of an, a, an oddball assortment of characters, I suppose, in some ways. But Captain Britain had shown up in the X-Men before because of his relationship with Psylocke. But they're not the, the characters you'd automatically pull together. Um, not least because Nightcrawler's German um, and German characters um, <laughs> didn't feature very positively in British comics for a long time. Right, so, right, of course. Throwback to the Second World War, which was still prominent in the 80s. So this was actually quite progressive for, for, a, for, a, for a British set series to view a German character positively, which is a great thing. And it's just it's just fantastic. Uh, basically, it ends up in a big fight, a big three-way fight between the War Wolves, the Technic and Excalibur. And at the end of it, Excalibur come together as a team and there's Arthurian imagery and there's a Phoenix imagery as well. Um, and it's just beautifully drawn, but beautifully coloured as well. Um, they must have used a different colouring technique in this. There's, really yeah, different. well, there's definitely uh, like a wash, like a uh, yeah. watercolour wash. It's definitely, it's full process colour rather than four screens like it typically is for a regular comic book. So right. you do... So no separator on it then, it's the colourist actually... The colors is the same. It's Glynis Oliver or Glynis Ween. It used to be Glynis Ween, yeah, yeah. She's been around for years and years, but it's it's beautiful. She's a colorist in the main book as well, but you can yep. really spot the difference. Yeah. Um, so yeah, it ends on a happy note. One of those famous Alan Davis's group shots, and everyone's smiling, and it's just it's fantastic. Yep. It's really fantastic. This was um, a great coming together. It was. It didn't feel forced. It didn't no. feel rushed or anything like that. It was. It was such a natural way to bring about all of these characters. It was it was plotted and scripted so carefully, and very very yeah. well done. Yeah, and it's you can tell it's a Clearman issue as well because it's, it's sort of verbal ticks, which I think have become memes sometimes now. Like he uses a lot of ellipse ellipsis, like Stanley uses exclamation marks. Yeah. Um, but it's but it's but it's beautifully written, and it's just um, I mean you really feel the pain and the characters mourning the loss of. The X Men and, and this this stands out. This this feels more much more like a um, sort of continuing the kind of somber feel, I suppose, of tea and sympathy in that respect. Right. Um, right. So I, I would I agree with you. I would absolutely put tea and sympathy in the candlelight dialogues right before this, because it, because then it would be more naturally evolving into the slapstick feel of Excalibur series going forward. Yeah, and I don't know. It, 
does it does it say I can't remember. Does it say why Captain Britain is is drinking he's so mourning. much? Why he's mourning? Oh, yeah. because his Psylocke is twin sister. Oh yeah, because oh, she's that's right. Yeah, she's dead. Yeah, because yeah. she was part of the X Men at the time who died. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, just wonderful stuff. I and I love uh, the introduction to all of these. It Chris doesn't assume that we know all these characters. So he does a good job of bringing them in one at a time and introducing who they are and kind of sort of what their power set is. But at the same yeah. time, not outwardly saying, just to bring you up to speed, this is who these guys are at the same time. So, yeah, it takes it's, it's very, very well written. It reminds me of the New Mutants graphic novel because he did the same thing for the New Mutants. Uh, before that story started out, he did a special edition a graphic yeah. novel, long format story to introduce all of those characters who were completely new, except for Cannonball, maybe, maybe I can't remember. But oh, Zan, Zan, um, oh gosh, what's her name again? The Vietnamese character, and I, I can't remember oh, her um, name. She would have been introduced to Marvel team up before. That's, oh yeah, that's right, Karma. Yep, yeah, she been introduced before. One thing about this that I really picked up on is um, Alan Davis in this issue. He does a quite a lot of. Um, kind of three-quarter bird's eye shots, which are really hard to do. And just his use of perspective is just perfect. I mean, the, the guy just, his, his draftsmanship's incredible. There's a splash page. That, well, this, does, this doesn't actually have page numbers on it, so it's hard to tell, but there's a splash page where tech that show up. Um, and I think it's in the lighthouse. That shot's stunning, and it's really hard to, to draw like that um, and get the perspective right with multiple characters around each other. It's just... His anatomy is perfect, his perspective is perfect, his storytelling's perfect. I mean, you, you just couldn't fault the art in this. It's, and like you say, he draws absolutely beautiful women. I don't think anyone draws women as well as him, or, or men for that matter either. I mean, Captain Britain Nightcrawler are, are like movie stars. It's, it's stunning, stunning stuff. It really is. And even, uh, even the ugly characters, when Rachel has her hound scars or when... At one point, Kitty becomes extremely overweight just for a panel. It's got such a, a tenderness and a humor to it. <laughs> and uh, the the tech net, all of the aliens, the there's such an, an imagination to all how every single one of these guys is drawn. Yeah, I love uh, Waxworks, who used to be called an, an special executive. Um, his name was Elmo. <laughs> <laughs> um, and fascination with you called Scatterbrains. I don't know why they changed the names. I don't know if it's the right things. I love Joy Boy. Joy Boy is fantastic. Yes. <laughs> and then China Doll's good as well. So their powers are really imaginative and they're very, very funny. But it's it's kind of, it doesn't really, I think sometimes maybe, you know, one of the comments was the humor hasn't dated that well. Sometimes it can be a little bit forced. It's not like that at all here. It's it's just, like you say, it's, it's, it's very tightly plotted. I mean, it's it feels like those kind of eight-page issues where there's so much in it, but this is over what forty or forty-eight pages. It's it's just it's fantastic. It's one of the best comics I've read. It's really really good. Yeah, and it doesn't um, it doesn't lean heavy on the humor. There's a little bit in it, but it doesn't get to the humor that the earliest Excalibur is known for in this special. It sort of it it plays it actually fairly straight the entire time. I wonder, I, I really noticed that reading, I didn't notice at the time because it was a little gap, um, I think that was published in the April um, and then uh, it was later on in the year where the series started, there was a time delay and I, thought, I assume that was to get Alan Davis time to sort of 
get a few issues in the can. Yeah. But there's a big tonal shift. I wonder if that's because Sensational She-Hulk was doing well, Justice League International was doing well, and that's when he decided to really go for a lot of humour in it. Or maybe Chris Claremont just wanted to write something different hmm. um, than X-Men, which was quite grim <laughs> to do that period. So this would have been around about the Australian era, wouldn't it? Um, if they're presumed dead, the X-Men. Yeah, it would yeah. be. Um, so yeah, that's the Excalibur issue one. I really enjoyed the different character of that book as opposed to the other X-Men titles. The fact that there was, uh, uh, it was a, a little more lighthearted and it had a little more, um, little less angst, a little more fun. Certainly still plenty of comic book soap opera, but the focus was a little different. And I really enjoyed that. That came from both Chris and Alan. I'm sure Alan encouraged Chris towards that, and that was not something that Chris had really done a lot of, writing more humorous uh, comic books. So I think a lot of the ideas for that came from Alan. Alan would make suggestions about what the next storyline could be or the, the next characters to introduce or to return to. And as an editor... My approach was always, there were two different kinds of editors in my day. There were the editors that really had strong ideas about what they wanted to do with each title, and they hired people to write and draw their vision. I took a sort of different approach. I knew what I wanted in general for a title, but then I hired talent that I thought was best suited to execute on what my high concept was and then my job just became really shepherding their work actually i always looked at it as i was shepherding the characters and i was basically a butler to the creators to make their <laughs> job easier to not interfere with their creation process excalibur number one is called war wolves of london i love that the first thing we see is this weird character named tweedle dope Yep. And he's. Uh, this is what Claremont is great at. He sets up things that aren't going to be resolved for several issues later. And we see this one character, and we're not going to meet him again for a few issues. It's just a yeah. just a, a tease. And also this um, silver head, which also doesn't really come into play for like ten issues from now or even later. <laughs> it's it's a. It, it's I love how he decides to tell his stories he, he he sets things up for the long term but each of these yeah. stories still are still like one issue or two issue storylines that are kind of uh self-contained in a sense with these threads that are going that are going through okay so the point of this issue is that there are war wolves that are looking for rachel it's a very much a direct continuation from the previous uh, special edition and they are disguising themselves in skins of normal humans so that they can uh, get close to Rachel without her knowing. Meanwhile, Kitty decides to come up with her own plan. She dresses up as Rachel and has this device that alters her mutant signature so the war wolves will find her. She plans to take them out so that Rachel isn't captured, but everything goes wrong. And we, we meet Courtney Ross, who is a character from the Captain Britain comics as well. Captain Britain's old girlfriend. So she comes into play here. And one of the things I think that sets this humor right off the bat is that uh, Captain Britain, at the very last page, 
Captain Britain isn't really Captain Britain through this whole issue, and then he shows up to the fight late, and he says, Sorry to be late, team. Took a minute to find a place to change into costume. <laughs> <laughs> like, thanks. You you missed the whole thing, Captain Britain. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, but I think that really changes his character from he, from here on in, because... Uh, at this point, from like what we've seen in the Captain Britain stories, and from what we've seen in the special edition, he's actually a fairly competent character. But through the course of this book, he becomes a little more and more kind of like a bumbler. Yeah, have you read the later Alan Davis issues? I have Ezra not. Nope, nope, I haven't. Right. That's, that's picked up on as a plot point there. Um, okay. Alan, Alan Davis knits a lot of this stuff, like a lot of the subplots that get set up, and yep. Chris Clement doesn't finish. Because he, he leaves the book eventually, Alan Davis pulls together, and it's in, it's incredible writing. Nice. I mean, if you, if you love these issues, I do. You are gonna lose your mind. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking forward to that. That's gonna be in um, Excalibur Epic Collection number four, which, as of this recording, is right. not out yet. Right. Um, there is one fairly uncomfortable scene in this issue that is a little bit dated, and it's uh, it's very Claremont, I find, um, actually as well, where after they save everybody, uh, there's this guy that works for Courtney Ross. His name is Nigel, and he starts hitting on on, yeah. on Rachel <laughs> a couple of times. Yeah. And just a few pages before this, I think it's Nightcrawler and Captain Britain are having a conversation about how Rachel and, and Kitty are still teenagers. So yeah, it's wildly inappropriate for this guy to be making the moves on this teenager. She doesn't dress like um I, I mean i was born in 1974 and this was 1988 so i would have been 14 i don't remember many people dressing <laughs> like rachel um but but it's that's always been a thing in x-men and and, and i think chris clement's a great writer but sometimes a lot of the situations that particularly kitty would be in which is meant to be 14 years old it's, it's yeah there's a few of them in this book really uncomfortable. yeah yeah <laughs> Yeah, yes. really. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's it's, but that's always been there in X Men. Um, in those classic runs, I mean, Dark Phoenix is a lot of <laughs> uncomfortable imagery with with women, um, with the Hellfire Club. So yeah, yeah, and one definitely of, there, yeah, right. I think so. And one of the things that Captain Britain even says is, he's looking in on Rachel being hit on by Nigel just from a, yeah. from the other room and he says uh, that's the chap who accosted Rachel at the nightclub thought for a moment he'd yeah. recognize her as Phoenix she handled him well but that he's the type who will never get the message still perhaps I should suggest Rachel adopt a more conservative mode of, atti of attire so saying that yeah. if she doesn't want men to hit on her she shouldn't dress the way she is which um, is something that these days um, is is like, well, why are we saying the woman is at fault for for being raped, essentially, right? Um, the guy should know how to control his his feelings despite the way a woman is dressed. I don't know if that was a purposeful thing, though, from uh, Clermont, where he was trying to make Brian Braddock into that kind of stuffy character, because that, that is that. I mean, the argument you just told the right is from the cube, which was a film in the 80s. So. Yeah, I don't think that, that it was like a a statement or anything like that, but there is another comment later on that Kitty makes when she's going through Rachel's wardrobe 
I think it's I think that's when it yeah. was where she says basically the same thing. You know, uh, she Rachel shouldn't dress that way if she doesn't want to get that kind of attention or something like that. I don't know, but there's yeah. there's it's all throughout this book. There's the scene where they're on that boat, and all of the seamen are trying to you know grab her butt or something like that, and um, and it even happens yeah. to Captain Britain as well when he loses his costume and he's stark naked in the middle of New York and everyone's gawking <laughs> at him. Like it's a uh, it's just uh, something that Claremont brings to the table like all the time. <laughs> Yeah, de- definitely. I mean, it's, it's just, I think this, the sexual politics stuff would be better if it was, you know, obviously it wasn't minors that were that were involved in it. Right, um, I yeah. think, I mean, I'm assuming Rachel's 19, 20 years old, so, yeah, I mean, it's, I mean, Nigel Frobisher uh, is a, I mean, he's a sleazeball, but, yep. Yep. but um, yeah, when it's Titty, it's just, don't, you don't need to include her in those types of storylines. I mean, she's in there as a point of view character, um, so, you know, you can do much more interesting things with her beyond that stuff. But that started off with the whole Colossus stuff as well, though. So True, yeah. So it's been around for a long, long time, and fans obviously bought into it and, and, and can ask for more of it, I'm guessing. Yeah. Well, as far as first issues go, I mean, this technically isn't the first issue. The first issue is definitely the, yes. the one we talked about before, but this was still great. Uh, the team kind of getting together for their first mission as a unified team and yeah. and they do a good job they all have their role to play and they they mess up which i think is nice they make mistakes mm. and they still have to figure things out but they still pull it off in the end um they they nearly botch that bank bank hold up job yeah do you notice the first panel um in issue one is a kind of throwback to Captain britain's origin with what looks like, I mean, it's not necessarily a nuclear power plant, but there's a power plant and then there's standing stones right next to it. So that matches the splash page from uh, Captain Britain Weekly. Um, it's either issue one or two that we covered earlier. Oh, okay. Oh. It's, I hadn't actually noticed before, but it's actually the exact same panel that's repeated in issue two as well. And um, when it follows up wow. with um, Widget. Yep, you're right. So yep. I never actually, I never noticed that before, and it's it's totally redrawn because you can see that Davis has drawn the power plant slightly, in slightly different dimensions. So, so no, that's 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 cool. I've never noticed that. Yeah, I've never noticed that either. That's neat. Um, so do you want to go into issue two? Yeah, let's do number two. Let's do let's do this. <laughs> so I, the first thing I want to say about the the cover is that Excalibur issues are really famous. The Alan Davis covers for being funny. Yes. Um, him doing comedy covers, which he doesn't do in the first issue, which is just a kind of iconic shot. Um, but the front cover of this is 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 fantastic and suggests that Kitty's been eaten <laughs> the front cover, <laughs> yeah. which, which is absolutely great. Um, so this issue um, starts off with, it's a throwback to Loch Damon, which I cannot stress enough, does not exist in Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> and it's at the same power plant that was featured with Tweedledope and Widget makes a comeback in this and the little boy in this Colin comes back into the comics I think it's 50 issues later (laughs) (laughs) and becomes one of my favourite characters so this what's what's quite rare in comics is that you'll actually get a a Scottish superhero Um, and this this is an example of someone that becomes a Scottish superhero but I think everyone always forgets that he's Scottish and then um, he has been hunted because he is either a mutant or a warpy. Um, <laughs> I really don't want to have to explain that. That's what Megan is 
Um, so again, it's it's kind of like magical versions, I suppose, of, of mutants in Marvel UK. Oh, okay. That um, so um, the woman that shows up, the criminal, with the men who are dressed in a very provocative <laughs> way, <laughs> yeah, um, is the vixen who was a villain from the original Captain Britain comics, right? Um, and she's she's fantastic. Um, she's got that sort of femme fatale sort of air. Uh, Dominatrix sector. <laughs> you can see why Alan Davis would like the yes, and Alan Davis, Chris Claremont would like the character. Yeah. And she's basically the crime boss of 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 London, and it's really really good. Um, so the, the design of the guys in the green and yellow are from the original Captain Britain Weekly. Vixen, I think, comes from like the second or third issue of Captain Britain Weekly back in the seventies. So it's a real throwback, um, and it kind of starts off like you see Widget's powers, like the sort of dimensional gateways, which is saved Colin with. Um, then it goes into Kitty's been kidnapped by the Warwolves, um, who sort of kill people and then steal their skins and wear them so they can disguise themselves as humans and then pop out their mouths, which is really cool. Excalibur are trying to rescue Kitty, and one of the Warwolves tries to steal Kitty's skin, but because of her powers, she fuses with um, the Warwolf, and Excalibur catches up to the Warwolves. Um, and Kitty's sort of personality is manifesting itself um, and she kind of rescues herself alongside Excalibur and then um, there's a big fight and I, actually I noticed, I noticed I didn't pick this up in the time but after your your comment she appears naked <laughs> out of the Warwolf yep that's right which kind of is a bit, probably a bit inappropriate but then it is a really weird ending where these sentient aliens end up in London Zoo. <laughs> yes, it's so strange. Which is, which is funny, but you're like, that's quite... Uh, and kind of oddly made me think about the concentration camps, strangely enough, and Jasper's Warp in the in the, in the back matter. Um, but it's quite nice seeing the, the howling posters and the company of wolves and um, the wolf man in the background, and they're watching TV, and one of them's smoking a pipe. Um, <laughs> yeah. They're very much the characters from Coronation Street, which is a... I'm really going to offend British listeners by saying it's a terrible, long-running British soap opera. <laughs> uh, it's, it's, oh, God, it's so bad. Um, so, yeah, it's, 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 it's really... I mean, I, I love this issue. It's, it's really good. But some themes are starting to emerge. Some patterns in the plots are emerging. Body swapping seems to come up quite a lot in Excalibur at the start, right. which is quite strange. I hadn't picked up on that before because I read all these when they came out. I used to get Excalibur. Um, and there's some interesting things in this around their power sets. What you were saying about Captain Britain, he seems to be getting depowered a little bit already. I mean, there's a scene in page 96 where he does an amazing punch with um, and one of the Warwolves punches its head back into its body. Right. But then in the next page, Nightcrawler does the same thing. And I was thinking, how could Nightcrawler be that strong? If Captain Britain did that, surely he'd break every bone in Nightcrawler's body. <laughs> that just totally weak. <laughs> right. Obsessed with power levels. So yeah, at the time I, I made a note, I was like, how strong is Kurt? How come he can do that? The Warwolves are made out of metal. So, um, but no, it's, it's great. And the art's fantastic again. The storytelling's great. Like you said, the comedic pacing's brilliant. On page 98, that last panel with Kitty... Um, her hands appearing at the Warwolves oh, mouse, man, yeah. just facially fantastic and that really reminds me of the work that Kevin Maguire was doing in Justice League International at the same time, he's famous for his facial expressions, Davis is every bit as good, every bit as good 
the the facial expressions are what make the book for sure uh, because Davis draws the facial expressions so accurately to how we need to understand the dialogue or the situation. Um, there's Definitely. there are some yes. artists that where they can draw their three facial expressions. Like I think Rob Liefeld is one guy that I was like he just draws the scrunchy nose teeth gritting and kind of angry eyes all the time and that's like every panel Captain America looks like that and you don't get a real sense of a range of, of acting but Alan Davis really really has his acting chops are like super super good yeah yeah he's, he's yeah you're right I mean it's phenomenal the body language of the characters as well and I think maybe sometimes you get some artists who can draw them in that well they maybe um, it's kind of cheesecakey Yep. But his, it's not like that because he draws different body types. I mean, you can see between, like, Captain Britain looks like a kind of Anthony Joshua or Vladimir Klitschko style heavyweight boxer. Um, presumably can take a punch better. But, um, and Nightcrawler has got that kind of much more athletic um, build. You know, he looks like a gymnast. And obviously Kitty's got a very different physique to Rachel and to Megan as well. Obviously they're all idealised types. So, I mean, that's the thing they're all you know, attractive characters. Um, so, yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can draw any type of body shape, you know, heavier set people. And that really comes in and introduces Di Thomas back into the cast. Yeah, he draws He draws all the women, like it's not a cookie cutter. I think that's the thing that when you see them yeah. all standing together, uh, oftentimes if you see a group shot of X-Men, it's like Rogue and Psylocke and Jean Grey, like they all have the exact same body type. They just have different color hair. But uh, <laughs> but this one is not that that way at all. Like they, you definitely get a sense of their different ages, uh, based on their yeah. body proportions and their heights. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you're definitely right. Like Kitty's heads, are, like, yeah, definitely a little bit bigger than. Yeah, and she's got body. slimmer hips and that kind of thing too. It's like she definitely she she is definitely drawing younger younger than the other two. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. That, there's a panel in page ninety two, and you know what I was saying about those kind of overhead shots. Yep. And there's a panel, and it's this fairly innocuous um, of um, Captain Britain talking to Megan. You see him from behind. That's just such a beautifully drawn angle. Not many people draw from that angle. John Byrne's actually very good at, at doing that kind of stuff um, from that overhead shot. But I mean, just look at the way he draws Megan there. It's just, it's absolutely perfect. I mean, the anatomy's perfect. The perspective's perfect. Yeah. It's so good. I mean, you can you can see that. The way he'll have done that is he'll have drawn a perspective grid on that as well because the crowd he's got in the background, it's all perfect. Yep, totally. Absolutely. Yeah, it's it's uh, it's great. And the coloring doesn't give any sort of shadows to stand on. So it kind of looks like they're floating in nothing, which is my only complaint there. But the, 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 yeah. the pose is great. And what that does is it really highlights uh, Phoenix's face in the middle. Yeah, it really does sell it. If that was a British street, it would be covered in chewing gum. (laughs) 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 And the paving would be really uneven as well. (laughs) So it's not very realistic from that point of view. More chewing gum in the the Excalibur comics, Alan. (laughs) If you go to page 86, there is uh, the werewolves are coming into their house. And on the walls, they have all of these posters of movies that have to do with werewolves. Those are the posters that they have in London Zoo. I, I never noticed that in that yep. scene there. But yep. that's when I mentioned them earlier on. I hadn't noticed about them earlier on. That's a brilliant callback, actually. <laughs> uh, yeah. That's a really good spot, Curtis. 
and, and yeah, it's so really cool. So they must have uh, gathered them all up and refitted their little London Zoo cage with those posters. There's also um, a little chair that says Lon Chaney. Of course, Lon Chaney is the actor that, yeah, that yeah. plays the Wolfman in the 1930s movies. I feel I should point out that was actually Lon Chaney Jr. Lon Chaney. Lon Ch- yeah, that's that right. <laughs> that, yep. Who is a apparently notorious alcoholic and really difficult to work with? Oh, really? <laughs> Sounds like Captain Britain. <laughs> yeah, 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 definitely. Yeah. <laughs> okay, I think we've got time for maybe one more issue. We've only got to issue number three here, and then we yeah. should uh, put a hold on this and resume next time. So let's do issue number three. So this one's called Moving Day. This is sort of a transition issue from the first two issues before we jump into the the bigger story that's happening in the next issue. The team is moving into Captain Britain's lighthouse. Megan has the great idea of bringing everybody in, so she uh, she she offers to uh, move everybody in and doesn't really tell Captain Britain about it until it's too late. Um, but the first half of this book is actually to do with Vixen, who we met in the previous issue. She is a springing juggernaut out of this jail. I'm not exactly sure why she's in the this jail in the first place, because it's not to find juggernaut. It's to find yeah, something else. I that as well, yeah. uh, and she just happens to yeah. stumble upon Juggernaut and springs him as a distraction so she can get away. Uh, and so, of course, Captain Britain and Juggernaut fight and stuff like that. And the, the whole story is fairly kind of uh, inconsequential. They take him down fairly easily and they round up all of the other people in the prison who get sprung as well. It's kind of just a way to show to show us what these guys can do to remind us of everybody's powers because everyone gets their chance to shine in a specific scene. Mm-hmm. Um, we also are taken back to that uh, place in Newcastle where the, where um, what's his name? Where this widget character is. It uh, ah. sends the, he creates a portal. So this is the first time we actually get to see widget really Oh, I know. I guess he did the portal in the last issue as well. But we see what's on the other side of the portal. Um, this is setting up a story that's going to happen, like in eight issues from now. This guy yeah. with a—he's obviously is a stereotypical um, paranoid guy who's wearing a, a colander on his on his head for protection against alien mind probes or whatever. Um, he steps through the portal and he lands in. The uh, across the omniverse, it says, to a different yes. a different place in the omniverse. So yes, and that's the fascist version of Saturnine, and that's why you'll notice her with that tattoo, dagger tattoo she's got on her thigh. Yep, pay close attention to that, folks, because that's going to come back later. But this was this was a great <laughs> issue, definitely. Yeah, yeah, the, I I really enjoyed this because we have all of these the different um, uh, just a. Uh, emotions as everybody moves in people are happy people are sad people are confused um they have to learn to live with each other it's not a very big place because it's a lighthouse and they're cramming them all in there so i liked that aspect of it and uh, especially the scene where courtney and brian are talking and he's like unloading on her about what's what's going on uh, in in his life um there's just some great writing in here again like like always this, this, I mean, there's a lot of things that um, you were speaking about earlier on where Captain Britain becomes more bumbling. This is definitely the start of it. 
I yeah. think, with, with Juggernaut, his fight thing there, with the playing for laughs. And I remember at the time when I was reading this, I was a bit annoyed because Captain Britain was one of my favourite characters. I was like, why are they making into, into this um, buffoon? Um, but, but I mean, you know, Juggernaut obviously is formidable. You know, he's he's pasted Thor before. But, uh, yeah, the, the bit with the love triangle, with well, it's really a love quadrangle with Brian and Kurt and Megan and, and Courtney kind of gets dialed up a notch here. And I don't know. Like I always, I always felt that Kurt was just been a bit, a bit of a creep. <laughs> to be honest, <laughs> I think it's also the thing you can see where Captain Britain's becoming. It's quite interesting when you were talking about um, Rachel in the previous issue, the way he's dressed. This is really where you start to see Captain Britain becoming very sexualized, and he's always wearing these green jammies, <laughs> which are super tight and topless. But you can see Megan kind of revert her face there in 119. You know, her werebat face comes out a little bit. Yeah. yeah. Um, and she says, oh, don't look at me, you mustn't see. Um, and then Kurt does his kind of... I don't know, the way his tail's wrapped around his leg there as well. The body language is fantastic. It's really, really good. I mentioned earlier about uh, Nightcrawler sort of having a different role in this book. Uh, the way he was treated yeah. in X-Men was very much the playful kind of free spirit guy he did a lot of joking and kind of had some smart quips and that kind of thing but when you place him here he uh where they're playing the humor in a different way off of the different uh, different other people he all of a sudden is a straight man so he becomes more of the serious character um more and more wisdom he helps keep the team together uh you know, I feel like he's even more of a team leader than Captain Britain is. Definitely, yeah, he absolutely is. I think he's. I think he's a romantic leader of the book as well. Yeah. I mean, I, I wonder what Clement would have done with Megan Nightcrawler if he hadn't left the book eventually. Um, I love on page one nineteen, the bottom panel. That's just the lighthouse with the sun breaking through the crowds oh, yeah. and the water crashing on the surf. Like, it's just a. It's a throwaway panel where the people are talking, but instead of having talking heads, we get that dialogue with a beautiful landscape, and it's such a great contrast, especially with what they're talking about, about um, about the sadness and not knowing what's going on and stuff like that. Where you get the the sun just as a symbol of of breaking through the clouds of some of like light and hope coming through. So, uh, great imagery there. Yeah, the thing about Davis is like I don't know if you get this. You know, sometimes where I mean, I know a lot of people love. Um, but the image guys, like um, particularly Jim Jim Lee, sometimes and if I look at Jim Lee's stuff, and I'll think, you know, I can see like I can see what people why people like it, but it looks like he's tried really really hard to draw it. Whereas Alan Davis just makes everything look effortless. Yeah, it's true. Yep, mm-hmm. I understand that. It just looks pencil. It's it's it's, it's incredible. It really is. It's just natural poses, and I think I got a couple other examples here on page one twenty. Um, the picture, uh-huh. this, the pose at the, the middle panel at the top where Rachel is sort of reaching back to open a window and one foot is slightly yeah. further back than the other just to show where the weight is distributed. Yeah. It's just little things like that. She's not standing still, but it's a realistic movement. Yeah. And then on the very, very last panel of this issue where they all have like arms in yeah, and Megan just has one arm yeah, reaching true. back yes. and touching Brian's hand, which is on her shoulder. It's just it's just it's natural. Which is, oh, sorry, at the very last panel yeah. of the of the issue, 
where they're all it's the group yeah, shot yeah surely. nightcrawler has his hand on brian's shoulder and kitty's reaching back they're not just standing there with their arms in they all have it's just it's a picture it's a snapshot of people in motion and it's just wonderful you can read it two ways because you know this is where you really see the cut um Kurt kind of stepping in between Brian and Megan's relationship. Yeah. And he's got his hand in Brian's shoulder and Megan's got a hand in Brian's hand. Um, it's just, you know, um, I never noticed that before, actually. That's really quite... I wonder, I wonder if they'd meant that. There's a, there's a great panel in 100, page 122, one, two, three, panel, panel four, the way that Brian and Courtney are uh, they're, they're in shadow, so it gives it gives it a feeling of like they're doing something um, it's, it's, it's almost like a scene in a, in a spy thriller, like uh, all the president's men or something like that. You know, it's they're conspiring in something. It's like they're having an illicit love affair. It's it's which which certainly is the the kind of tone that's developing. They're doing something wrong, or, or Brian's overstepping a mark, and um, he's in a relationship right. with someone else. And especially with uh, especially with the way that he reacts to when uh, Rachel interrupts their conversation with her little sigh face in the, in the in the in the air oh yeah he's behaving so suspiciously isn't he he's he's um which which makes that kind of that kind of final page when he's when he's cuddling megan you see the look in his face it's almost like regret you just you kind of start to think brian you're a, you're a bit of a heel but he's just i mean he's a, i'm not making excuses for that type of behavior but he's a complex character these aren't one-dimensional characters you're you're right they're they're evolving they've got character arcs and i think that's that's a sign of a, of a great writer yep but and it doesn't feel unnatural. He does it kind of slowly over time. They still stay true, like the way they talk and stuff like that. Still says feels true to the way that they they have always been. Uh, let me see. Do we have any more that you want to talk about? Um, I I could talk about this stuff literally. Yeah. <laughs> oh, what, one more thing so that I wanted to mention is that at the beginning of this issue, when they are fighting Juggernaut, everybody gets their punches in, yeah. uh, and then Megan grows really, really big, and it's her time to punch something. But then they stop her, and I felt yeah. like that was kind of a yeah. a bum move. Like everybody got their time to shine, but for some reason, randomly, they decide that Megan shouldn't hurt Juggernaut or isn't equipped to go up against him. Uh, I, I thought that was kind of weird. They want to kind of not show how really powerful she is, because one thing that happens in her when she transforms from the werebat Megan into this Megan, um, one of the things that happens is so there's some um, characters which come back into Excalibur later on, and they're the kind of the forerunners to who appear in this weird happenings organization. Yeah, they scan Megan and they see in it she's an Omega legal an Omega level threat oh wow um, so she's incredibly powerful she's more powerful than Captain Britain more powerful than all of them and that's kind of reflected in um, page 111 when Captain Britain says um, <laughs> I'm sorry I always read this in an English accent and then go to do it in a terrible English accent and he says glory Megan's growing to jug- juggernaut size and power and and, and and you can read that a couple of ways that maybe almost Captain Britain's starting to feel a bit threatened maybe by not being the main person in the team and he's been overshadowed by his, girl, uh, his girlfriend as well, and his partner yeah. as well. So that would make sense yeah, because yeah. he really treats Megan like almost like a pet that he needs to take care of and protect. Yeah. And if she is not, if she doesn't need that, if she can protect herself, then Captain Britain doesn't have any purpose with her. 
and maybe that's why yeah. he starts ignoring her in a sense. It's an, that's an interesting observation. It's it's weird. It's almost like if you look at um, page one hundred and seventeen when Nightcrawler's bouncing about, and there's that you know that that part of his character that you've mentioned before, the playful, the joyful acrobat from X Men. That's still there in the character. It is absolutely. Um, and Captain Britain's hung over, and eventually he's gonna have an affair, basically. Mm. <laughs> so he's he's just. He's he's not he's not the role model. I mean, you're definitely right. Um, Kurt is portrayed as the role model, but still at the same time, his behaviour is not perfect either because he he is behaving in a you know, and he says it himself. His behaviour with Megan grows increasingly inappropriate. Yep, I mean, but he catches himself on that, and then through the remainder of these yep. issues, he's careful to guard yep. himself from doing that again, which I think is yep. incredibly admirable. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah, he shouldn't have got into that in the first place, but he makes sure that it doesn't happen again. One one thing that's not picked up on as well is um, just when you were mentioning about Megan and Rachel, eh, sorry, uh, Kitty and Rachel Elleron, Megan is actually a very young character as well. Um, and, you know, it picks up later on in a, a literacy as well because she didn't have a formal schooling. Um, she's, I think, late teens, early 20s as well, which makes Captain Britain seem even skeevier because he's... <laughs> I mean, I, I think he's meant to be the same age as Spider-Man because they room together in that Marvel team-up issue. So he's kind of that kind of um, really vague mid to late 20s character, but certainly dresses and acts like he's in his 30s. Well, his physique definitely makes him look a lot older. Yeah, we're all built like that, Britain, though. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's exactly my physique as well. I'm six feet six and built like that. So. <laughs> yeah. It's not true. I can't stress that enough. <laughs> um, yeah, no, he's... They're, they're physical ideals, but emotionally they're not. They're very flawed characters, and it's... Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just that that creates a team dynamic. It's great. It's great. Yeah, they are all so individual. Nobody's the same, and Claremont ha- juggles them all so, so well in these issues. Yeah, he really does. He's, he's... We should keep... We should put a, a cap on this episode, and resume yep. talking about this next time so uh for all of you who are listening i hope that uh, our conversation has been interesting even though we only got through three issues of excalibur plus the special edition <laughs> um, <laughs> well the back yeah the, the back matter as well we did take out a sequence that's yeah. right and i think that was great it was good <laughs> that we spent that time so next issue we'll go through uh excalibur number four through eleven plus mojo mayhem and then Marvel yep. Comics Presents, numbers 31 to 38. Great. Well, thanks, Johnny. We will see you all in the next episode. Yep, an absolute pleasure, Curtis. Thank you. Thank you.